August 8, 1962. As a Lutheran minister read Psalm 23 to the grieving funeral attendees, intermittent sobbing could be heard throughout the chapel. The organizer of the service, baseball legend and former husband Joe DiMaggio, sat in the front row and stared silently ahead as the reverend continued to deliver the biblical passages. Unlike the parties, galas, and premieres she attended throughout her life, only close-knit loved ones were permitted to attend the funeral ceremony. DiMaggio ensured that her alleged Hollywood friends were forbidden to attend the service. He later remarked that, quote, if it wasn't for her so-called friends, Marilyn would still be alive today, end quote. The deceased's real name was Norma Jean Mortensen. Later on, it was Norma Jean Baker. And later still, as the world's most iconic film star, Marilyn Monroe. Laying in the casket partially exposed in a green poochie dress, her makeup was completed by a teary-eyed and somewhat intoxicated Whitey Snyder. He clutched a flask of gin. Well, for the last time, he applied her eyeshadow and bright red lipstick. Completing this beautification task was a final act of friendship between the two of them, and it pained him deeply that he had to fulfill the promise he gave to her those many years ago. That promise, physically embodied in a gold money clip that Monroe had gifted Snyder, was engraved with the immortal words of Monroe to her dear friend. The clip still in his pocket as he brushed on her mascara, while the words inscribed on the clip continuously repeated in his mind. Whitey, dear, well, I'm still warm. Welcome to Smokefield Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies and discontents hosted by Gregory Zink Murdering Marilyn Monroe The Kennedy Conspiracy Theory Part 1 Hello everyone welcome to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast Before we begin our analysis into the death or potential murder of Marilyn Monroe I would like to make a few disclaimers first I will present both the standardized official narrative of Monroe's death and then contrast that with the Kennedy homicide hypothesis. And just to make this crystal clear from the outset, I am not definitively saying one way or another which is the correct version of history. This is because, regardless of which narrative you subscribe to or what you believe about the possibilities surrounding Marilyn's death, there are clear inconsistencies and questions on all accounts. I am personally choosing to focus specific attention on the Kennedy murder conspiracy theory angle because, from my perspective, it explains most of the unanswered questions. And this accounting of events is largely the byproduct of a recently released book entitled Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe by Thompson and Rothmiller. It also includes the 1975 Anthony Scaduto book who killed Marilyn Monroe, and there's also some deductive reasoning about the central figures in the saga that adds into our equation. Unarguably, Monroe's death was one of epic intrigue, and 1950s Los Angeles had an extensive supply of smoke-filled rooms. 
Those rooms often involved corrupt cops, drunken movie stars, two-faced private detectives, powerful politicians, casting coaches, mafia criminals, and FBI informants. And innocently standing five foot six and 117 pounds at the center of all the madness, with her blonde hair, bubbly personality, and big heart, was the self-described selfish, impatient, and a little insecure Norma Jean Mortensen, a.k.a. Norma Jean Baker, a.k.a. Marilyn Monroe. For as author Douglas Thompson succinctly writes, quote, Truth, like all material, can be squeezed, bent, angled, and cut into whatever shape is required. What conclusions need to be drawn, which lives and careers need to be saved, and which are quite dispensable. And rarely has it been twisted so expertly as in the death of Marilyn Monroe. End quote. So be forewarned that in countless instances throughout this twisted story, it will feel as though you are staring at a spider web of a detective board, one with a mesmerizing amount of thumbtacked pictures, all connected by various pieces of colored yarn, zigzagging from celebrity to criminal to politician to athlete to authority figure and then back to celebrity. And all of these very prestigious threads, they crisscross in a dizzying array of overlap that doesn't even allow for two degrees of separation. Forget about Seven and Kevin Bacon. So pour yourself a neat glass of Canadian Club, light up a Marlboro Red, and take a piece of advice from the definitive Hollywood star herself when she reminds us that, quote, Imperfection is beauty. Madness is genius. And it's better to be absolutely ridiculous than absolutely boring. Nineteen fifties Los Angeles was a very special time in America's history. Special because of the uniquely inspirational and persuasive role it played in the post-war and Cold War period. For not only was the United States a democratic superpower that led the world in technology, science, manufacturing, and agriculture, but it also led the world in information, entertainment, the arts, and most importantly, ideology. Some would even argue that those later industries are more important than the former because of their influential role in injecting meaning throughout the national culture. For when you get down to it, what were the Americans fighting a Cold War for exactly? Was it so U.S. corporations could manufacture and sell more widgets per quarter on sheer business metrics? Or was it so the American worker producing the car believed he was working towards the American dream? The United States was leading the Western world by example, and they were leading them towards a bright future through money, technological advancement, and individual liberty. America was, after all, the shining city on a hill. So the guiding message was work hard, strive for independence, love your country, love thy neighbor, resist tyranny, and have some damn fun by partying hard. And in the late 1950s to early 1960s, before the hippie revolution, before the expansion of the Vietnam War, and well before LBJ and the election of Richard Nixon, there was no better place on earth at selling the American dream than Hollywood, California. In Los Angeles, was the place where American values were condensed and packaged into ravenously consumed products called films. Hollywood was therefore the cultural hub of the world, and at the epicenter of that sphere was its biggest star, 
Marilyn Monroe. But before we can unpack the details surrounding her untimely death in 1962, we're going to take a step back and look at the central individual whose ideas surrounding her eventual demise are central to our investigation. A man who never met Marilyn in real life, yet is responsible for unraveling the layers of intrigue that lead us to our distinctive conclusions. The man who makes the case that Miss Monroe was in fact murdered out of fear and malice for her potential to bring down the most powerful political family in the United States. This man is Mike Rothmiller, author, producer, former federal and state level intelligence officer, contractor for the FBI, the CIA, the Secret Service, Army Intelligence, Naval Intelligence, Coast Guard Intelligence, the IRS, the California Department of Justice, the State Narcotics Bureau, and most importantly for our story, an undercover agent for the now defunct and classified work of OKID, otherwise known as the Organized Crime Intelligence Division. During Officer Rothmiller's career in the secretive subdivision of the Los Angeles Police Department, starting in the early 1970s, he cut his teeth gathering intelligence on Californian branches of the Mafia, but quickly realized that organized crime wasn't Okid's only mission. Supervising that division, and uh, the last five years that I spent LAPD was within the organized crime intelligence division, and I was the youngest detective ever to be assigned there. And what we did was gather intelligence. That was it. We didn't make arrests. We had roughly 60 detectives. And in the five years that I was there, nobody was arrested. There was not one arrest made out of the entire division. Uh, the reason being the chiefs of police who set up LAP intelligence, they were afraid that if we were subpoenaed to go to court, then a lot of the intelligence would come out. And they were afraid of that because much of the intelligence we gathered uh, was through means that were not legal. Uh, there were people doing illegal wiretaps, black bag jobs, which the FBI used to do, and they probably still are, where they'd break into a, an office or to a home, look around, see what they can find out. And uh, He learned that they also had files on Robert Redford, Connie Chung, Michael Jackson, and Muhammad Ali. There were also copious files on the Black Panthers, the Zodiac murders, and even the political leadership in the state of California, including the mayor of the day in Los Angeles, Tom Bradley himself. Basically anyone who was anyone was being watched in this distrustful and corrupt era. And for all the leads Officer Rothmiller was tracking and tracing throughout his life, he would be noticed by some extremely dangerous people his investigations as a law enforcement agent, a government contractor, and a private citizen would lead to some remarkably violent warnings regarding the toes he was stepping on. In 1982, within a couple weeks of interviewing famed actor and invaluable persona to our Monroe murder theory, Peter Lawford, Officer Rothmiller was nearly killed by a slew of assassins' bullets. Douglas Thompson writes of Rothmiller's experience, quote, only weeks following his intense interrogation of Lawford on a muggy night in August 1982, he was near home driving his unmarked police car when a gunman on a motorbike roared up alongside him and sprayed a magazine of bullets at him. The burst from the machine pistol shattered the peace of the Orange County street and Mike Rothmiller's life. He'd sensed the hit seconds before it happened. 
breaking and veering over a dirt embankment. Even in the thundering chaos, he heard the bullets being pumped towards him and saw the flash of the weapon like a jumping light. He was thrown, or he rolled out of the car and landed hard on the ground. Rothmiller vaguely recalls the sirens and a helicopter clattering above him and voices, lots of voices. But what were they saying? He couldn't quite comprehend. When he came to, he was in the hospital with his wife by his side. She was safe, but he still didn't feel that way, especially after a visit from his Okid lieutenant. His LAPD colleagues and investigators from the Huntington Beach Police Department found several bullets lodged in his car. They were from a 22 semi-automatic pistol, a weapon with a recoil-reducing barrel, perfect for high-performance assassins. After minor investigation, nobody, outside those who masterminded it, knows who was behind the hit on Officer Mike Rothmiller. That night, he had been returning from a clandestine meeting in California's Mojave Desert. And astonishingly, the attempt on the life of an LAPD intelligence detective did not even make the evening television news or even the inside pages of the newspapers. His OKID colleagues blocked out all reporting of the event. To the outside world, it was as if it had never happened. Rothmiller knew they could kill news as well as fake it, and now it was happening to him. The one thing that Okid hated was publicity. And although the Rothmillers lived 50 miles away from Los Angeles, inexplicably, two members of Okid just happened to be parked steps away from their home on that night. With the local police standing by, the Okid detectives broke through a bedroom window and entered their home, activating the alarm system. Somehow, the two detectives knew how to deactivate the alarm. And the system had been installed by Rothmiller and an Okid colleague who knew how the system operated. The two detectives spent roughly an hour rummaging through their home before leaving. The following day, Rothmiller's attorney demanded to hear a recording of the alleged 911 calls, but the police claimed that a system malfunction had failed to record just those calls. When taken to trial, Judge Gabriel L. Sippos found the LAPD's misconduct so despicable and unjustified that he awarded Rothmiller an additional 50% under the Labor Code 132A, subsection 1. His $25,000 award paid almost all his legal fees. Later, a police retirement board denied him a medical pension for his permanent injuries. LAPD's conduct reinforced what he already knew. LAPD could be as ruthless and underhanded as any criminal organization. And in retrospect, was it all because of the Lawford interview? Being a former OCID detective, Rothmiller cannot completely dismiss that possibility. Since LAPD was willing to unleash dirty tricks on one of their own, what chance did a hapless Marilyn Monroe stand during a time when the LAPD had zero restraints? End quote. Now you might be wondering, what does Marilyn Monroe have to do with organized crime, crooked cops, domestic surveillance operations, and political connections? Well, due to her relationships, both in the platonic and sexual regards, Marilyn was directly and indirectly connected to a lot of important people. They spanned government, the black market, and entertainment. And we'll analyze these points more carefully as we move along. But for expediency's sake, we can say that she made literal bedfellows with very powerful people. 
And once this is established by both the watchers and the watched, you are understood to know things that may end up causing you more suffering than enlightenment. So returning to Officer Rothmiller, he was an up-and-coming intelligence agent within the LAPD in the 1970s. He looked like the kind of guy you would easily find yourself sitting beside at a local pub. A man with a genuine and disarming smile who you'd be happy to chat with while watching a baseball game and sipping a beer. Rothmiller was originally put on desk duty as a rookie cop. This was so he could learn the ropes and grasp the paperwork angle of the job. It was there, within the bowels of the Central Division Station, that he was able to freely dig through mountains of investigative materials that had accumulated since 1946. This was back when the LAPD was keeping tabs on bootleggers, bookies, pimps, and racketeers. Old-timey crimes that were in the 1970s being slowly overtaken by the rising drug trade and human trafficking rings. Long past were the days of Bugsy Siegel and Mickey Cohen running bathtub gin to Depression-era Chicago. Yet Okid slowly evolved into the largest and most complex intelligence-gathering agency only topped by the CIA and the FBI. And Okid detectives? They were tasked with the specific mission of collecting high-level information in the most populous and influential American city. And in old-school Los Angeles, these were used for both criminal and political purposes. And there were absolutely no factoids that were deemed off-limits. And after starting his desk job, Officer Rothmiller perused the copious files in the depths of the LAPD building for days, and he eventually arrived at the letter K in their filing system. This is where his fascination exploded. For near the front of that section was Kennedy, and connected to that JFK file were RFK, Arthur Miller, Ted Kennedy, Jimmy Hoffa, Peter Lawford, Joe DiMaggio, Frank Sinatra, J. Edgar Hoover, prominent mafia figures, and most importantly to our story, Marilyn Monroe. Little did he know that reading these documents would send him down a rabbit hole that would eventually occupy nearly 45 years of research, interviews, and investigation. After days of reading the interconnected web of files and reports, Rothmiller began scribbling down notes, taking mental photographs, and copying what little he could under scrutiny. Needless to say, leaking high-level intelligence was a dismissible offense and one that could potentially have him arrested and investigated if he exposed or crossed an ongoing investigation, especially when considering the power of the people he was learning about. And almost all of the cases were open, by the way. Slowly, we'll learn that this was a common Okid police unit tactic to prevent investigations from becoming conclusive as Monroe's death would eventually be. It would be reported, investigated, tentatively concluded, yet somehow never definitive or closed. But suffice to say, Rothmiller's snooping and connecting of dots was revealing something previously unimaginable to him. It was beginning to look like the death of Marilyn Monroe was not an accidental drug overdose like the public was led to believe. Rather, it looked more and more like there was a conspiracy to have her shut up. And as he would later write, quote, His investigations led him to tracking witnesses, informants, and officers of the LAPD, 
whirling around his mind was the evidence, both hard and circumstantial, that convinced him her death was a homicide, and that Robert Kennedy, Peter Lawford, and selected members of OKID were intimately involved in her death. End quote. For Rothmiller, this was a life-altering realization, one that would eventually lead him to leave the police force for expositional writing and research, one that would lead him to challenge the police force he worked with, and one that would make him some very dangerous enemies. But as Marilyn herself once famously stated, quote, I believe that everything happens for a reason. People change so that you can learn to let go. Things go wrong so that you can appreciate them when they're right. And you believe lies, so you eventually learn to trust no one but yourself. Before we get into the fast-moving Hollywood lifestyle that is at least tangentially responsible for Marilyn's ultimate demise, we should set the stage with some of the supporting characters in this tragic tale. One such person, very prominent throughout the 1950s and 60s within the LAPD, was Chief William Parker the longest-serving head to ever lead the Los Angeles Police Department. This was ultimately the man behind this entire saga, the wizard behind the curtain, as it were. Chief Parker ran a tight ship and was known for importing his World War II captain's mentality to the police force. To conjure up an idea of his personality, consider that he was the basis for the character of the USS Enterprise's science officer, Spock from Star Trek, the original series. That's right, Gene Roddenberry, creator and writer of the famed television series, followed in his father's footsteps and became a Los Angeles cop. And his boss was none other than Chief Parker himself, whom he would frequently talk to about philosophy, politics, and life advice. For those not familiar, having Spock based on your personality essentially means that you are an unemotional, infinitely stoic, and as logical as humanly possible without being an actual robot. And this often led to one of the chief's constant hurdles as he led the LAPD. Trying to negotiate public relations with an increasingly technological media and entertainment environment. TV was booming, Hollywood dominated the global movie scene, and radio was at the tail end of its golden age. So he wanted to clean up the force and present their best image possible to the public. In this vein, Parker even went so far as to actively maintain an advisory role for the popular television series, Dragnet. The story you're about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. The program creator, Jack Webb, would constantly consult with the chief. He would ask details about the realistic portrayal of police tactics for his main character, Joe Friday. Fun, no doubt, but back in reality, Chief Parker had to balance his responsibilities of commanding the largest and most powerful police force in the country. He had to balance this honor alongside the political considerations at all levels of U.S. governance, the newfound reality of mass multimedia intrusion, and also of managing the internal processes that helped him maintain his police rank. The intelligence wing of his department was known as OKID, 
the aforementioned Organized Crime Intelligence Division. And Parker often willingly worked with the CIA in off-the-books surveillance operations. Los Angeles was a playland for the rich, the powerful, and the connected. And Chief Parker was the law around those parts. What he and his trusted officers decided was more or less the standard and the truth as it was later known and would be recorded in history. And Chief Parker had grandiose ambitions to boot. He was known to have mentioned to friends, family, and his selected co-workers that he was gunning for the directorship of the FBI. If the political currents ended up blowing his way, that was. For throughout the entirety of his reign as LA's top cop, the post he sought after was thoroughly occupied with the judicious resolve of a shadowy background character in our story, the underhanded and infamous J. Edgar Hoover. During the 1950s, Hoover was an active member in the Red Scare phase of US politics and greatly aided Joseph McCarthy in rooting out communism and its alleged sympathizers from the ranks of American life. But more relevant to our story was Hoover's cunning foresight in gathering dirt on his political opponents. An often used weapon in his FBI arsenal was the blackmail of his real and perceived opponents to solidify his position and to bury his enemies before they struck him first. He was well aware of Chief Parker's potential and wanted to keep tabs on the situation in LA should the political winds in Washington get dicey. And Hoover, he always had dirt on politicians. Their secret beliefs and utterances, their brushes with the law, their illegal dealings, and most importantly for the hyper-moralistic tone of the zeitgeist, their sexual proclivities and affairs. A reality that would eventually become problematic for two up-and-coming Democrat party brothers who constantly lusted after beautiful women and had ravenous sexual appetites. So where better to collect this invaluable and damaging information than America's playground? This brings us back to the LAPD. Chief Parker was the one who implemented the police academy as a prerequisite to serving as a member of the Thin Blue Line. This professionalized the force, but also deeply entrenched a boys club mentality. They were a fraternity in and with arms. They had the blessing of authority and were granted legalized violence by the state. So they were, and remain, an organization with a unique set of responsibilities and who are largely loyal to their own. And indeed, as time went on, the corrupt and ugly side of the LAPD eventually spilled out into popular culture as the world saw the video of the Rodney King beating in 1991. And way back in the 1950s, Chief Parker was the man responsible for instilling the hear no evil, see no evil, and speak no evil approach to the department. And in particular, one of his most trusted men in this regard was Captain James Hamilton. He was the head of the now infamous OKID and was thus responsible for the largest subnational surveillance and information gathering network in the United States. If you needed details, knowledge, or dirt on anyone important within the Los Angeles County, he was your man. But more importantly, he was Chief Parker's man. 
Trafficking in spicy details was Captain Hamilton's specialty, and Chief Parker loved indulging in the results. As intelligence was gathered on his request, the chief enjoyed hearing the steamy tidbits of who was gay and straight in Hollywood. And even further still, Captain Hamilton would relish Gates with his intel briefings taking special care to include photographic evidence when possible. This would entail movie stars, gangsters, and politicos' private activities and their extremely personal encounters with, in grotesque fashion, men, women, children, animals, or any combination thereof. In a sense, he was leading a covert platoon of taxpayer-funded peeping toms who were accountable only to Chief Parker. Aside from his career aspirations, Chief Parker also worried about the dignity of his city, so he kept close tabs on the powerful people within LA and what they were up to, again, for both political and criminal purposes. And at the time, our star Marilyn Monroe was just beginning to creep onto his radar as a budding starlet. Throughout the early 1950s, Marilyn had blown up to superstar status with a series of acclaimed films that included a musical comedy called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, a classic piece of film noir entitled Niagara, and most prominently and shockingly for the 1950s, gracing the cover and centerfold of the very first issue of Playboy magazine. In that particular shoot, she is laid out on what looks to be a mass of red velvet curtains. Marilyn's shoulder-length blonde hair and exposed breasts surely adorn the locker rooms of many of Chief Parker's officers, but her association with the LA underworld must have further interested the authorities. She was frequently seen partying with local mobsters, and this was a direct byproduct of her occasionally sexual relationship with the Rat Pack, and in particular, its leader, Frank Sinatra. For as Vegas showgirl and Marilyn's Some Like It Hot co-actress Marion Newman said in an interview, quote, In those days, in the 1950s, everybody fucked Frank Sinatra. I did, Marilyn did, it was part of the life. Sinatra and Peter Lawford liked to party, and they liked their girls. They always wanted lots of girls. Marilyn was around the parties, and then she was a star. And nobody thought about it like sex. It was like brushing your teeth. Something you just did. Marilyn wanted to be looked after, and that was a sure way to get a man to put his arms around you. And there was always men. With her kind of wattage, that kind of glow, it will attract hordes. It will always do that. The Kennedy boys were known as the swingers around the town, and Jack Kennedy was just a good-looking young politician who wanted to get it on. That he wanted to get it on with Marilyn wasn't hard to figure out. End quote. So even by 1955, Chief Parker had an extensive file on Marilyn Monroe and her allegedly shady connections to the LA Mafia via the Rat Pack. This meant that her relationships, her partying habits with gangsters, the celebrities she drank with, and the musicians she slept with were documented and stowed away in oaked filing cabinets. But as we will see, this is nothing compared to what they would learn in the following seven years. 
Maryland would end up being the terminus that connected elements of disparate roads of influence together. And before her sexual encounters with political elites like JFK and RFK, it is true that she was briefly married to baseball legend Joe DiMaggio. But a series of jealousy-fueled and domineering incidents would eventually doom the marriage after only nine months. Most conspicuously was the seven-year itch incident. Although not political in the sense of our story, it was criminal in every sense of the word. As Monroe biographer Randy Terraborielli writes in his landmark work, The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe, quote, Filming for The Seven-Year Itch commenced on September 1, 1954. The first location seen in New York was the flying dress sequence on September 15th. The shot of Monroe in the Trevia-designed ecru halter top dress, standing on a subway grate, the accordion-pleated skirt, a-flying as she gleefully but vainly tries to anchor it, is firmly imprinted on the collective cerebral cortex of moviegoers for all time. 5,000 onlookers watched the filming of it at the 52nd and Lexington, near the Translux Theatre. Unfortunately, Joe DiMaggio was one of them. Prompted by Walter Winchell, who, it would seem, was trying to get a good reaction from Joe for his column, Joe found himself on the set that night. Watching his wife perform in such a provocative, even if very obviously staged, moment infuriated him. Billy Wilder described the look on Joe DiMaggio's face as the look of death. Even though Marilyn wore two pairs of panties for modesty, under the Clegg lights, there was still more visible than what Joe would have been comfortable with. James Haspiel was present for the filming, and he recalled that, I must confess, I had no trouble seeing through Marilyn's sheer panties. Most of the published photographs from that night do not illustrate this intimacy. I think they shot the scene 15 times, so it was a very exciting, intimate situation being played out over and over again before my eyes. Nonetheless, I could fully appreciate DiMaggio's anger. Indeed, Joe stood there sour-faced. In defense of Monroe, though, I am reasonably convinced that in her dressing room, she did not see what the powerful Clegg lights then put on display. DiMaggio rushed back to the St. Regis Hotel and waited for his wife to join him there at the end of her workday. Then he took out his rage on her, slapping her around the room. The altercation was so noisy, in fact, that the other guests reported it to the hotel's management, afraid that someone was getting hurt really badly. Monroe's acting coach, Natasha, she was in the room next door, and was alarmed enough to pound on the door to DiMaggio's suite. Is everything okay in there? she shouted. The door swung open, and there was Joe, eyes blazing, face reddened. Get out of here, he told her. Mind your own business for once. Later that night, Milton and Amy Green had dinner with Joe and Marilyn. They noticed bruises on Marilyn's back. The next day, Gladys Whitten, a studio hairdresser, noticed bruises on Marilyn's shoulders. But we covered them up with makeup, she said. A DiMaggio friend named Stacy Edwards said, quote, That was the last straw. The way I heard it, Joe let her have it. It was really bad. After he hit her, she told him she'd had enough and she wanted out of the marriage. I spoke to Joe maybe three weeks later and asked him about that night. He said, things got out of hand, I'll admit it. But she pissed me off so much. She didn't care what I thought about anything. And she just wanted to do what she wanted to do. 
That was DiMaggio, though. He could be a sweetheart if everything was going his way. If not, he was pretty mean. To tell you the truth, I lost a lot of respect for Joe when I found out he hit Marilyn Monroe. I thought to myself, how could any man hit such a beautiful creature? End quote. This would eventually lead to their divorce. Yet these developments did not stop DiMaggio from remaining jealous about her personal life afterwards. He would even work together with Frank Sinatra before he and Marilyn were intimate to hire a private investigator from the city detective and guard services to track and surveil Marilyn. The man they got was named Joe Doherty, no relation to her alleged father, Jim Doherty. And he bugged her car, her apartment, and gave her the same treatment to anyone romantically involved with Monroe at the time. Private investigator Doherty is on record saying that, quote, Sinatra hired me to track her and said, I want you to follow Marilyn and this bozo she's screwing. Take pictures of them in the act. Then, Domaggio is going to use it against her and get that broad back in his life. And I was thinking, if this doesn't piss off his wife, I don't know what will. So how he gets her back doing this kind of thing, well, it's beyond me. But a job is a job, so we signed a deal and got to work. End quote. Their strategy failed, however, and the PI could not get the exact type of incriminating evidence against Monroe that was requested. DiMaggio wanted photographs of her sleeping with other men as a way to maybe blackmail her back into the relationship. Needless to say, they eventually divorced after a nine-month marriage, and Marilyn went almost immediately into the arms of another one of our primary figures for this story, the aforementioned Frank Sinatra. Without getting too far into the weeds on this topic, Sinatra was connected to a lot of high-ranking mafia figures, of whom were also friendly with movie stars like Monroe, corrupt politicians like the Kennedys, and the Chicago syndicate mob bosses like Sam Giancana. So Frank sparking a relationship with Marilyn was almost destined to happen at some point as their paths inevitably crossed throughout the 1950s. And almost more certainly than that was that she would end up in the files of the LAPD's Oakid division. And shortly after the DiMaggio breakup, Monroe stayed with Frank to recenter her life and to try and have some selfish fun. An incident related from Sinatra friend Jimmy Whiting recalls their cohabitation and shows how they first hooked up. Quote, After they began living together, Frank and Marilyn both admitted to still being in love with their estranged spouses. Therefore, for a time, there was nothing sexual going on between them. They were sharing a vast common loneliness. Frank wasn't interested in anything more though it was difficult for his friends to fathom that he had one of the most beautiful and sought-after movie stars living in his apartment with him and was not intimate with her. As it happened, Marilyn had a habit of not wearing clothing around the house. Everyone who knew her well said this was the case. She always said she would rather be naked. Her friends and staff were used to seeing her au naturel. When she stayed with Frank during this time, she did not change that behavior. One morning, when Frank awakened, he went into the kitchen wearing just his shorts and found Marilyn standing in front of the open refrigerator with her small finger in her mouth, 
trying to decide between orange juice and grapefruit. She was naked. Oh, Frankie, she said, probably feigning embarrassment. I didn't know you got up so early. Well, that was the end of the platonic relationship between the two of them. He told me that he took her, right then and there, in the kitchen, up against a closed refrigerator. Man, he said, I've never had sex like that. She is one fantastic woman. End quote. You would have seen and heard. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch or if you have no appetite, now is a good time to switch off the radio. Hey everyone. I just wanted to take a quick break from this episode to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts on earth. It's called History Impossible by Alex von Sternberg. Alex does deep dives on some of the most obscure and fascinating topics that you could ever imagine. If you've gotten this far in the episode, you're probably very interested in old school Hollywood. So you have to check out his two-part series called The Great Hollywood Cover-Up. And if the show description doesn't get you, I don't know what will. Alex explains that nearly 100 years ago, scandal after scandal was rocking the new kid in town, the motion picture business. Overdoses on mercury bichloride, cocaine-addicted starlets, prostitution and drug rings, suicides, and an alleged raucous orgy ending in the rape and murder of an actress by one of its top stars. To hear this amazing content, go to Apple or Spotify and subscribe, download, and rate Alex von Sternberg's History Impossible. You will not be disappointed. I promise. This is History Impossible. As interesting as Marilyn Monroe and Frank Sinatra having sex is, we need to pause for a minute before we go onward with the story. I need to introduce more critical participants in this epic tragedy, almost all of whom would eventually go on to suffer their own brutal and painful deaths in the years that followed Marilyn's. Firstly, we have Peter Lawford, an English actor and socialite who married into the Kennedy family in 1954. He took Patricia Kennedy's hand at the altar, and this meant that from that point onward, he was a brother-in-law to the brightest and fastest-rising political stars of the day. Edward Kennedy, a.k.a. Ted Kennedy, Senator John F. Kennedy, a.k.a. JFK, and most importantly for our crime saga, Robert F. Kennedy, a.k.a. Bobby Kennedy, a.k.a. RFK. And Lawford's familial connections to the Kennedys weren't his only sphere of influence. He was also an honorary member of the Rat Pack. This, once again, makes another connection to Frank Sinatra. And in Lawford's later years, he was noted more for his off-screen activities rather than his actual performances. Even back in the 1950s and 60s, he was noted as one of the first people that was famous for being famous. And because of Lawford's Hollywood connections, swooning female fans, and wealth, the Kennedy boys became regular visitors to his and Patricia's Oceanside Santa Monica Beach House. This is located at 625 Palisades Beach Road if you're interested in doing a Google Street View. Celebrities, musicians, artists, and politicians were known to frequent the property and have long and debauched nights by the water. And one of the locations most frequently intoxicated and philandering guests was the increasingly prominent Robert Kennedy. 
Shortly after Monroe's divorce to DiMaggio, RFK was made chief counsel on the Senate Subcommittee on Investigations and was actively looking for help in the fight against organized crime. He found a considerable ally in Chief Parker and the LAPD's Organized Crime Intelligence Division. The information provided by Parker's agents would go on to help RFK prosecute his case against mob-connected Teamster boss Jimmy Hoffa in 1957. Here we hear an exchange between the two. That would have taken place if all of the various incidents hadn't came about uh, during my period, short period of time as general president. In due time, these situations will be cleared up. Mr. Hoffa, that would make a great deal of sense. I'd be very sympathetic if it wasn't for the fact that a majority of these people are in the Central States Conference. And the people under your jurisdiction, you've got people in Detroit, at least 15 who have police records. You've got Joey Glimco in Chicago. I say you're not tough enough to get rid of these people then. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I know a lot of people in the United States. You're in with States. every place that you go. You're associated with the leading gangsters and, and uh, racketeers in the United States. Mr. And it's Kennedy. not so shocking that you should be involved in taking the Greenleaf money. Mr. Kennedy, it is shocking to even involve a man with that kind of blood taint money. And I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. Well, I don't go for that kind of action. Well, then you could have... Uh, arrange that, not going for that kind of action, by disassociating yourself many years ago from Joe Costello. Why? You could have done it from Mr. John Vitale. Every place you go, we've checked your telephone numbers, you're calling every gangster in the United States. Mr. Kennedy, what has happened you maybe have, in the past have, life of people today may be different. You've got Lieutenant Soldier. Together with his brother, then-Senator JFK, Robert Kennedy was in the midst of waging a political and legal war against the Mafia. Following a pattern that would recur endlessly throughout their lives, John Kennedy would start something and Robert Kennedy would finish it. It worked this way for their senatorial careers and with the women they had affairs with, and it was no different for Marilyn Monroe. So while the Kennedys were making political hay out of organized labor colluding with organized crime, Monroe was enjoying the honeymoon period of her recent marriage to celebrated playwright and author Arthur Miller, who himself would be investigated by the U.S. government for communist ties and questioned by the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Though it was during her previous marriage to Joe DiMaggio when Marilyn allegedly first chanced upon an event that would eventually end with her death less than a decade later. According to Officer Rothmiller and Douglas Thompson, it was at a Peter Lawford beachside party in 1955, while attending with her then-husband Joe DiMaggio, that Marilyn was first introduced to Senator John Kennedy. He allegedly asked if they had met before, and Marilyn replied that perhaps they had when she was living with Robert Stock. A bizarre and potentially revealing answer, considering that a recently published book about the life of Elizabeth Taylor claimed that she had a threesome with Stock and JFK. Regardless, she was said to have left her number with Kennedy that night, and being completely enthralled with her, called the very next day. DiMaggio answered the ringing landline, and upon hearing John's voice, hung up without remark. Kennedy would apparently remark to her later that, quote, I guess I shouldn't call at certain times, huh? 
end quote. And this was at the point of peak Marilyn in her career, and it's hard to accurately describe just how important of a figure she was in 1950s culture. But Monroe biographer Randy Terraborielli captures a hint of it when he notes how by the 1950s, she was in full-blown Marilyn Monroe mode. He says that, quote, This meant the transformation away from Norma Jean had been total. The way she spoke, a honeyed voice so whispery and seductive, the way she moved her lips, a kiss always imminent. The way she moved her body, a striptease always a possibility, but never quite a reality. And when she was in public in front of her fans, and the ever-present glare of the photographer's flashes, she instantly became Marilyn Monroe. She didn't even have to think about it anymore. She was quickly becoming a rising sex symbol for an entire generation. And it was only going to get worse for her as her star continued in its ascent." End quote. Shifting back to the political side of the story though, and without getting too far into the topic, JFK's sexual proclivities are now something ranking close to legendary status, not only for his prowess, charm, and high-profile affairs, but also for the brazen risk-taking in fulfilling his desires. In Nasser Gami's book, First Rate Madness, Uncovering the Links Between Leadership and Mental Illness, he chronicles JFK's lustful existence by describing how, quote, John Kennedy's hypersexuality was not limited to his presidential years, he had a high sex drive, and probably was related to his hypothermic temperament and later strengthened by his libido-enhancing medications, which included anabolic steroids and amphetamines. For when Kennedy combined procaine injections with agents that produced euphoria, they all augmented one another and increased his sexual impulses even further. He used more drugs than he needed, and this produced a manic-like enhancement of his sexual energy." End quote. And drug-fueled or not, JFK had a long-running fascination with Marilyn. For during his prolonged health problems that would riddle his life, most famously with Addison's disease, he would take refuge in Marilyn's beauty. During a hospital stint in late 1954, when she was the prized sexual partner of men around the world and a founding Playboy bunny, JFK toted a picture of her to ease or perhaps distract away from his stays at the hospital. It was even reported he had Marilyn's poster taped above his bed in his private room. Well, at least when his newlywed bride Jackie wasn't around, that is. Back on the law enforcement front, Captain Hamilton was assigned by Chief Parker to be the personal Kennedy family liaison once they were in California. This unique arrangement started in 1956. Captain Hamilton was tasked with providing security and driving services to their families and of keeping an extra watchful security eye on the brothers. And with a great amount of accurate foresight, Chief Parker saw their political potential projected into the future. He astutely pushed aside his proclivity for the Republican Party and forged the basis for a professional relationship with the Kennedys that he hoped would extend into the 60s. And hopefully, the FBI directorship. The power merger between the Kennedys and the LAPD also reciprocally helped each other's fears with information to aid in each other's work. Robert was working on the connections between organized labor and the mob, while Parker and his men were busy looking for gangsters, communists, and subversives that would embarrass or threaten the city. All the while, 
Marilyn's OCID file grew exponentially as she started partying and getting intimate with known thugs like Pat DeCiso and Johnny Rosselli, men who were friends of Frank Sinatra and all of whom acted as secret pimps for the Kennedy family. The Mafia connections alone would have created a distinct interest in Monroe, but on top of that, she was married to a suspected communist in Arthur Miller. So much so that he was actually brought before Joseph McCarthy's House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1956. And as a quick aside on the topic of communism, the Cold War and the threat of nuclear annihilation cannot be overlooked in this time period. There existed an almost tyrannical zeal for rooting out communist or socialist sentiments that is hard to understate. And Monroe's husband Arthur Miller was put on the public hot seat for suspected sympathies towards Soviet Russia because of his leftist politics and his friendships with known dissidents. Monroe, who was at great risk of damaging her public image, attended Senator McCarthy's inquisition of Miller. Indeed, in her personal diary, she wrote about the anxieties that were plaguing her mind during this time period. Quote, I am so concerned about protecting Arthur. I love him. He's the only human being I have ever known that I could love. Not only as a man to which I am attracted to out of my senses, but he is the only person that I trust as much as myself. Miller was eventually found guilty for contempt of Congress by the anti-communist panel. He refused to disclose the names of his associates for the socialist organizations he was helping front. And for this, in the land of the free no less, he was being scheduled for a large fine and possible jail time. And as a result of her relationship with Miller, Monroe herself was the target of many surveillance operations. Indeed, intelligence was being actively gathered on the star, despite the fact that she had no, at least discernible, political leanings. Monroe biographer Tara Borelli writes that, quote, Many have wondered over the years how Marilyn Monroe ever ended up being the subject of so many years of FBI investigations. It seems preposterous, especially given her dumb blonde persona, that she was viewed as a serious threat to the country's security. So how did it start? Actually, there are reams of documents filed with the FBI concerning Marilyn. In October 2006, 97 more were released under the Freedom of Information Act, most of which are marked, quote, internal security. As research for the book, all of these voluminous documents were carefully reviewed, and based on them, it's clear that the surveillance of Maryland by the FBI began in 1955. Judging from the files, it seems clear that J. Edgar Hoover had pretty much lost his mind by the 1950s, at least when it came to his obsession with celebrities and what they may have had to do with communism. Of course, it wasn't just Marilyn whom Hoover was interested in. It was just about all of Hollywood, including, quite comically, Abbott and Costello. And who knew that Bud Abbott had 1,500 porn movies in his possession? And later, when she would begin her associations with John F. Kennedy, her files would increase tenfold, not only in pointless paperwork, but also in some foolishness. Most of the files have names and places redacted, as if the country would surely have been taken over by commies should it be revealed that she had dinner with Mr. X and Mr. Y. End quote. Later in his life, Miller explained how he could have easily beat the rap with the House Committee, 
with a small and to him worthless memento from his starlit wife. Yeah, well, he was uh, the uh, congressman from uh, Pennsylvania, Walters. And uh, they had subpoenaed me, and he finally called my lawyer, Joe Rao, uh, and said, look, we'll call off the, uh, the hearings if uh, I can get a picture with Marilyn Monroe just saying hello. And can you imagine all the people in the, in the United States taking this seriously? And this man doing that. So we, I said, I don't know. No, we'll have the hearing, I said. This is an absurdity. It's a scandal. But uh, worse things than that happen. We can observe and extrapolate in this respect that Monroe was in some sense the American dream personified. She came from an extremely dysfunctional and poor family and as a ward of the state for much of her youth, but rose above the fray to become the most successful and popular movie star of her era. So popular that sitting congressmen would dismiss charges against alleged communists just for a memento from the starlet. Yet during the meta-themes dominating the political sphere, Monroe managed to stay somewhat grounded and relatively in tune with what the world was. She was sharper than most would naturally expect, considering her dumb blonde characterization. But she managed to elevate herself atop the craziness of a hate-filled world in a unique way that transcended the political zeitgeist. This is evidenced by her utterance that, quote, I never quite understood it, this sex symbol. I always thought symbols were those things you clash together. That's the trouble. A sex symbol becomes a thing. I just hate to be a thing. But if I'm going to be a symbol of something, I'd rather have it sex than some other things they've got symbols of. And besides Senator McCarthy, another member of the anti-communist square brigade, J. Edgar Hoover, was also extremely active in this period because of his foresight in accurately predicting how the Kennedys would rise to political power. An idea that worried him deeply because he had little connection to their family. This led him to theorize that they would eventually oust him in favor of the working relationship they had with Chief Parker in LA. And at the time, Oak had had at least 20,000 non-criminal dossiers collected and later released on freedom of information requests it showed that Hoover was also collecting sexually damaging information as a means to blackmail and keep his national position. So naturally and inevitably, infighting broke out between Okid and the FBI. At this time, the Kennedys increasingly relied upon the LAPD as their chief source of intelligence for gangland busts to crush the criminal underworld. And Hoover rightly saw the threat that Chief Parker posed to his career. Shortly after this realization, they stopped sharing intelligence with one another. And by that time in 1958, Okid was labeling Monroe as an insider info source and the FBI had her pegged as a communist sympathizer. And despite her marriage to Arthur Miller, Marilyn was alleged to have still frequently seen JFK. 
Again, this is according to Officer Rothmiller's viewing of the pertinent OCID documents. They were said to occasionally meet in the penthouse suite of the Carlisle Hotel on East 76th Street in New York City. Monroe and Miller kept a Manhattan apartment for when they were in town. It was Arthur's home city after all, and in the frequent event that Monroe needed to be in New York for a ball, a movie premiere, or a big party, she had a place. And conveniently, it wasn't far from JFK's. It was even being said that in both OGID and FBI files, that there were high-level orgies being held in New York and LA that involved JFK, RFK, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, Patricia Kennedy, and Marilyn Monroe. What is defined as an orgy in the mid-1950s and was additionally classified as such by blue-collar cops is another topic altogether. But needless to say, she was mingling with promiscuous people who would jet-set around the country looking for the next good time. And Monroe was also sliding deeply into a drug habit that was making her vulnerable to being used or at least not fully realizing the extent of what was happening around her with some accurate foresight. It has been written by one of her biographers that, quote, Monroe was not at a good place during this time. Her disappointment in herself, combined with the drugs she was taking to sleep and then to wake, caused her to exist in a clouded state of mind that made it impossible for her to reason out her problems. Add alcohol to the mix, champagne for the most part, since other drinks made her sick to her stomach, though that didn't always stop her. And the combination was potentially lethal. She had gotten to the point where she had to pour herself a glass of champagne with trembling hands, snap open a capsule, and then pour the contents right into the glass for a quicker high. Or, for an even faster effect, she would just pour the crystals under her tongue. Because she had lost interest in so much of her life, she began to gain weight. She didn't care. She had been struggling to stay thin for so many years. She felt she deserved the right to be fat. She gained about 20 pounds during this time period. And there was no telling how one might find Marilyn on any given day. Seemingly happy and content, or morose and depressed. Still, people obviously wanted to be around her, and wanted to be in her presence. End quote. And in addition to the effects of the drugs she was taking, and the wild party she attended, Monroe was contending with being constantly used as a commodity. Both in the informational, Hollywood, and interpersonal sense. Almost every man who saw her tried to put the moves on Marilyn, and even the party secretary of the Communist Party of Russia was no different. We will examine this in part two of our Marilyn Monroe murder series. In the following episodes, we will investigate her escalating drug habit, her deepening connections with the Kennedy brothers, and the tragic events that would eventually lead to her mysterious death. Thank you for listening.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. Smoke-Filled Rooms kindly asks that you consider donating to the show with whatever you can offer. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke-Filled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much-appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.